Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Uh, we, we just spent, you know, weeks in the bleak uh, <laughs> dark of, uh, of 1800s Whitechapel. Uh, what are we doing now, Caroline? Where's our next point in history to flit off to, to find death, destruction, and disaster? Well, uh, I think we're going to be going to mid-century Tinseltown for our next jaunt. Hollywood, but nothing tragic has ever happened there. (laughs) No, no, certainly not. Sean, this episode is kind of a spiritual sequel to our 51st episode, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood. Oh, so coming right after we break off another 5-0. Yeah, that that is true. Uh, This story, too, features a larger-than-life film star whose untimely death has become mired in controversy and conspiracy theories. Only this time, we'll be investigating the, the death of actress and icon Marilyn Monroe, inspired by the release of the controversial new Netflix film, Blonde. Happy birthday. (laughs) Now, I don't know anything at all about this movie or the controversy around it. Mm -hmm. Um, I know nothing. So can you fill me and maybe other ignorant listeners in on on the controversy or is that better saved for later on the show? No, I think it's fine. Uh, The controversy, hmm... Well, uh, if you don't know, the movie is based on a novel by Joyce Carol Oates, who is a prolific American writer. Uh, That Bob Dylan album is also based on this, right? (laughs) No, that's Blonde on Blonde. (laughs) Idiot. Um, And in the novel, I don't think I don't know if she ever uses the name Marilyn Monroe. She she kind of calls most of the people by nicknames so joe dimaggio is like the ball player and arthur miller is like the playwright so it's sort of a great blind item kind of i mean it's obviously about marilyn monroe but it's a fictionalization of her life and so is the movie but um oof, i watched it okay and anna de armas who plays marilyn gives an incredible performance she's absolutely wonderful in it um, people were worried that maybe her accent would be too thick. Um, you know, it comes through a little bit, but... People would know Anna Darmus from... Uh, she's from Knives Out, um, Blade Runner 2049. Uh, she's, she's in a bunch of stuff. But um, this, is, this is a big star turn for her. And she plays Marilyn. And she does a wonderful job, but the movie itself is a little offensive, um first of all it's very much like a like a tone poem it's it doesn't have a sort of through line of of like a normal plot it's sort of scenes strung together from her life so it's like the the elvis movie in that way yeah yeah except i would say there's less of a flow to blonde like the elvis movie has thematic through lines. Yes. And Blonde does as well, but they're a little offensive. She calls every person that she's with romantically daddy a hmm. lot. Hmm. Um, she, We see her get an abortion and we see the fetus inside getting terminated. And there's a lot of like fetus stuff in this movie and it talks to her at some point. Um, 
you know, like the performances are good. I think Adrian Brody's great as Arthur Miller. He's not in it super long. Oh, I loved his uh, SNL appearance. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, but, I mean, like you see, she gets raped multiple times. Um, it's just... Unpleasant? It's an unpleasant watch. Uh, despite, you know, this great performance at the center of it, it's not very respectful to Marilyn's memory, certainly. And again, it is a fictionalization, but a lot of people don't really know that. It is touted as being a Marilyn Monroe movie, you know? Right. It's a weird move to fictionalize a very famous person's life instead of just... Doing the person's life, you know? Yeah. Instead of just doing just an biopic. actual biopic yeah. or just change all the names and, and, and make it like kind of an obvious Marilyn Monroe caricature who's doing her own thing in her own life. Yeah. Yeah. Um... It's kind of similar to, I think we talked about this in the Kennedys episode. Um, Joyce Carol Oates also did a novella called Blackwater based on the Chappaquiddick incident, but they don't. she doesn't say Kennedy. She says the senator in that, I think. Wow. These these names, she's really she's knocking them out of <laughs> she, the park. She does this kind of thing quite often. She's done something based on Jeffrey Dahmer, um, John Benet Ramsey. She, she kind of does these versions of these stories. So, I think... And does she always change them to add abortions? I don't think so. But um, I think I think with this, it's just they wanted to kind of have more artistic license. And they go really artsy. There's some stuff in different aspect ratios. There's like black and white in color. And it's very artsy. It's a very artsy movie. And it's very well shot. But it's like what is being shot is kind of offensive at a lot of points. Um, she's naked a lot, but it's never sexy. Mm. Uh, you know, there's, there's a point where she's like topless on the floor and Joe DiMaggio is like yelling at her and she's like calling him daddy. It seems it's, it creeped me out mm -hmm. how they chose to portray that. So she's great. The movie's not good. She should be nominated for an Oscar, but I wouldn't recommend the movie if, if you have any interest in Marilyn Monroe as a real person. Okay. Now, let's say I do have uh, interest in Marilyn Monroe as a real person, Carrie. Uh, why don't you take me through the life and times of this, uh, and death, unfortunately, of this fascinating uh, figure? Absolutely. Uh, I think context is key in any case, as you know. So kind of like Natalie Wood, I'll go through her backstory up through her death, and then we're going to go back and really look at all of the theories. Fun. But we'll start from the beginning. Marilyn Monroe was born Norma Jean Mortensen in 1926 to Gladys Pearl Baker, maiden name Monroe, and a father who was already out of the picture. Gladys was emotionally unstable and already mentally and financially unprepared for taking care of a child. And this is portrayed really darkly in the movie. She had filed for divorce and sole custody of her first two children, Robert and Bernice, from her abusive husband, John Newton Baker. And sometimes you'll see um, Marilyn Monroe's original name be Norma Jean Baker. Mm. It's from it's her from dad's her. name being Baker. Well, it's not her dad. It was from her mom's first husband. Oh. But um, Baker kidnapped the children and moved them to Kentucky. So following the divorce, Gladys had worked as a film negative cutter at Consolidated Film Industries. And Sean, did you know that back in the day, editing movies was seen as a woman's job? 
I did actually. Uh, I have I have been told that at uh, I think a tour of the Coppola Winery, <laughs> or maybe it, just me. But uh, it is something I learned in film school. Much like costume design, it was seen as something that required crafting and sewing things together. And often women were editors in the early days of film. They even pioneered a lot of the original ideas, like montage. Uh, Gladys's job as a negative cutter was to match the original camera negatives back to the work print so that prints could be made out of the negatives. Yeah, okay, I'm following you. <laughs> okay. Thanks to this, young Norma Jean was basically born into the film industry and perhaps because of it. Well, she was born into like a film canister, but that doesn't mean into the industry <laughs> no. necessarily. Well, just this year, 2022, DNA testing indicated that Gladys's baby daddy was Charles Stanley Gifford, her co-worker at Consolidated with whom she'd had an affair in 1925. Now, this is the guy from Match Game who goes, <laughs> No, he's just some random dude. He's not famous, but... Um, Norma- Charles Nelson Riley. Norma Jean was kind of led on by her mom to believe he was different people at different times. In Blonde, I believe they... The mom is hinting that he's Clark Gable, and it's a it's a really, really deep through line in both the book and the movie, her searching for this father figure. I see. Hence all all of the daddy. Yeah, like really beating us over the head with it. But I don't know if she ever really knew who her father was. Now, do you know that, do we know that she didn't call all of her boyfriend's daddy incessantly? Um, and Mr. I, President? I mean, I guess not. I have never heard of, like, maybe once or twice, I've never heard of her. I mean, it was multiple times in a scene. Yeah, like constant daddies. Yes. Norma Jean was placed with foster parents for the first years of her life until Gladys was able to purchase a small house in Hollywood and move her um, over there with her. But unfortunately... It was a difficult time for the small family, and in 1934, Gladys had a mental breakdown and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Oh, no. Now, did Marilyn... Obviously, Marilyn suffered from various mental health issues later in her life, but Mm -hmm. were they these kind of mental health issues? I don't believe so, but I... I mean, it's certainly insinuated in the movie, but I believe even in, in reality, she was afraid of her mental health issues and if they could get worse like her mother's. Now, in the movie, they use that as an excuse for why she gets an abortion, but... Wait, not just because she she's not ready for a baby? And well, it's... that's part of it. And then she's she also like goes to visit her mother and then just decides to get an abortion right after that. Oh, I see, because she's like, but the baby's going to be crazy. Yes, yeah. Gladys was soon committed to the Metropolitan State Hospital and would spend the rest of her life in and out of institutions. Norma Jean became a ward of the state, and she bounced around living situations quite often in her early teens. She was in the Los Angeles Orphan's Home for a while, then stayed with a guardian, where, unfortunately, she was molested as a young girl. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. She would end up staying with relatives and other family friends after that. Um, It was these dark childhood experiences that made Norma Jean want to become an actor. Quote, I didn't like the world around me because it was kind of grim. When I heard that this was acting, I said, that's what I want to be. Some of my foster families used to send me to the movies to get me out of the house, and there I'd sit all day and way into the night. Up in front, there with the screen so big, a little kid all alone, and I loved it. Yeah, it's, it sounds like the kind of upbringing that would make you want to be in lots of rooms with powerful men. Well, because she wanted to be in film, that's what happened. 
Eventually, her guardians were moving out of state, and instead of having to return to the orphanage, Nora Jean decided to marry her neighbor's 21-year-old son, factory worker James Doherty, in June 1942. This was just after her 16th birthday. She dropped out of school to become a housewife, but was already starting to see that the match wasn't a good one, which is not surprising. Well, sure, Jolton Joe is down the road. (laughs) She didn't know that. When James was shipped out to the Pacific in 1944 during the war, um, he was staying there for two years. Norman Jean moved in with her in-laws and worked at a munitions factory. A lot of women of the time worked in factories. So she was a little Rosie the Riveter. She was. Um, It was there that she met photographer David Conover, who basically discovered her after being sent to the factory by the U.S. Army Air Force's first motion picture unit, which is the only thing I would ever do in the Army. I don't think I would be good (laughs) at anything else. Um, And he was sent there to shoot morale-boosting films of the female workers. So I assume, you know, those little newsreels like, oh, did you see Rosie? She's she's supporting the troops, you know. And he's like, well, this one is going to boost some morale. Let me get her on on camera. (laughs) Yeah. Well, after this point, she quit the factory and began modeling for Conover and his friends, signing a contract with the Blue Book Model Agency in August 1945. I really don't like the tenor of she started modeling for him and his friends. Well, he knew a lot of photographers. I don't think he was a creep, but it's hard to tell. I I didn't see anything about him being a creep. Okay. Um... It was at this point that she dyed her naturally brown hair blonde and eventually signed a contract with an acting agency. She was signed by 20th Century Fox to a standard six-month contract in 1946 and was given the stage name Marilyn Monroe by executives. Marilyn after Broadway star Marilyn Miller and Monroe for her mother's maiden name. Is that was that a common stage name thing? You just grab a well-known yeah. first name? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they. It's like, oh, this this girl kind of reminds me of this other actress. Let's use that name. You know, it's like they're naming a racehorse. <laughs> it is. She divorced James Doherty in September 1946, as he was against her having an acting career, and began to work on learning the ropes of acting, singing, and dancing. She had bit parts in some movies, but eventually was let out of the Fox contract. Though Columbia Pictures snapped her up in 1948. Here, she was made a platinum blonde. But that was really the only big thing to happen for her at Columbia. Her contract ended later that year. So I guess I could have known this, but uh, that classic Marilyn Monroe hair color isn't uh, her original. No, you can see her modeling photos. Um, She has this kind of soft, curly brown hair. Marilyn became the protege and mistress of Johnny Hyde, the vice president of the William Morris Talent Agency, And through him, landed roles in several films, including classics like All About Eve and The Asphalt Jungle. Now, was William Morris related to Philip Morris, the cigarette guy? I don't know. Maybe. All these Morrises. The Morris brothers. (laughs) It was then that Hyde was able to negotiate a seven-year contract for Marilyn at 20th Century Fox, and her fame really began to take off, with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association naming Monroe the best young box office personality of 1952. Wow, and I thought they gave out too many awards now. (laughs) She would emerge as one of the era's biggest sex symbols after appearing in the noir Niagara as a femme fatale, a film called one of the most overtly sexual of Monroe's career. 
She moved on to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which became the biggest box office success of 1953 and really cemented her image as kind of a flighty, ditzy blonde bombshell. And that's sort of a romantic comedy? Yeah, pretty much. She was also featured on the cover of Playboy the same year amidst a scandal about her having posed for nude photographs during her modeling career. Monroe did not consent to the centerfold, and indeed Hugh Hefner just bought pre-existing pictures of Marilyn and used them in the publication instead of requesting to work with her himself. That's the tough thing about being a model. You're throwing your image out there all over the place. Yeah. During this time, she was also involved in a highly publicized romance with retired New York Yankees baseball hero Joe DiMaggio, who she married in 1954. Um, Listen, Joe DiMaggio... He's an Italian uh, Yankees great. I mean, he's a big deal in my family. Well, it's. I think it's probably also a little hard to imagine how big a celebrity he was at the time. He too. was the biggest still, even retired. Um, I mean, there's so many, there's some, tons of songs that mention him. Jolton Joe DiMaggio. He, he had his own song. He had. He was in uh, Mrs. Robinson later on. He had a pop in We Didn't Start the Fire and Vogue. He was a really, really famous guy through to his death in the 90s. And at this point, um, he had, I think, recently retired. And he's still doing a ton of like spokesman jobs. And I mean, everyone still loves Joe. Now, I'll definitely go more in depth on their relationship if I ever launch that other podcast, Love Affairs, but it was a complex situation. I look forward to it when you do, Care. Thank you. Both Joe and Marilyn genuinely loved each other, but DiMaggio had very particular ideas about wanting a traditional home life with a traditional wife. And unfortunately, though she was desperate to have a family, Marilyn was nothing close to traditional. I want dinner on the table and she's out making pictures. And there's some discussion of him being physically abusive. Um, I need to I need to look deeper into it. I don't know if it was continuous throughout their relationship or just when they had this giant fight that I'm about to talk about. Um But I do also know that after their divorce, he actually went to therapy. He made some big changes. And uh, I'll I'll talk about it, but they were very close at the end of her life. So I like to think hopefully he changed his ways. Internalized a lot of therapy. I I mean, it's surprising that any tough Italian guy in the 50s was willing to go to therapy. So I'll I'll give him a break just for that. A sports star, no less. Yeah. Yeah. Now... Their kind of back and forth about traditional family life was highlighted during the filming of The Seven Year Itch, which featured the now famous scene where Marilyn stood on a subway grate and the skirt of her dress was blown up by the air below. It's a classic image of her. Most people below like age 30, you could maybe even go to 40, Mm -hmm. probably haven't seen a Marilyn Monroe film all the way through, right? Yeah, if they've seen anything, probably some like it hot. Um, but everybody but they knows know this that. image. They know the picture of her in the white dress, smiling with you know the wind blowing up her skirt. The scene was filmed right on Lexington, Lexington Avenue in Manhattan, and the shoot garnered some 2,000 spectators. This publicity stunt was great for Marilyn Monroe, the actress, getting her countless front page news stories. 
but also symbolically marked the end of her marriage to DiMaggio, who was infuriated by his wife being treated as this sex bomb, both in this shoot and due to the emergence of Marilyn's nude photos, which kind of played into this sort of cheesecake persona that this old school guy just couldn't deal with being linked to his wife. Yeah, but yeah, but <laughs> the pictures were old, right? I don't know if he knew about them until they came out. Sure. And she was probably like, oh, I was a model. It's no big deal. But he was ashamed. Well, and then Seven Year Itch is probably less sexy and sexual than the noir picture, or the femme fatale picture you mentioned before, right? I mean, you see her underwear in the Seven Year Itch. In the other one, she's like wearing towels and not wearing clothes. So she's like got a towel wrapped around her. And it's very provocative for the time. But um, a few years ago, someone built. They also weren't married at the time yet. Right. A few years ago, a sculptor remember erected like a fifty-foot mm-hmm. sculpture of uh, Marilyn with the skirt blowing up. Yep. And a church uh, was very upset because they were right behind her butt. <laughs> I love it. So as you came out of the church, it was like they're up. You're looking right up Marilyn's skirt. <laughs> After they divorced, Marilyn retreated to the East Coast, where she founded her own production company and also began to study method acting at the Actors Studio. <gasps> the Actors Studio. The very same. Around this time, she began a relationship with playwright Arthur Miller, who has uh, written some of the greatest American plays of all time. This includes Death of a Salesman, my favorite of his, and one of my top plays ever, The Crucible, and uh, just a bunch of others. And this is a... I mean, she's going from, you know, one of the biggest sports stars of the day, or if not the biggest, to uh, to a, an intellectual, you know, one of the foremost intellectuals. She's, she's really all over the spectrum. She, she fascinates all kinds of men. True. I will say um, she did like older men. And again, I could totally understand that. If she's not like running around calling everyone daddy, I can still understand it as a subconscious wanting to be protected. Uh, and you got to remember, Joe DiMaggio, despite being a sports star, he was ugly as sin. I'm sorry, but he was. <laughs> so he'll take what he can get. I mean, if well, Marilyn's even, knocking at the door. No, not even that. He's, he, you know, dated other big stars, but um, she wasn't she wasn't looking for looks or fame. Uh, I think she... Well, ca- fame seems to have been part no, of the recipe. No, I mean, in in her romances, she was looking for men who would be strong and protective I think in Joe, she was looking for a family because he had such a close-knit Italian family and she never really had a real family. And then I think in Arthur Miller, um, you know, she was a very smart person. Um, And I think they had real, genuine intellectual conversations. Miller was investigated in 1955 by the House House Un-American Activities Mm -hmm. Committee Mm -hmm. for suspected ties to communism. And if you want more on that, just read The Crucible and read it as communism instead of witchcraft. It's it's pretty much an allegory. But during this time, Monroe stood by him, even though the studio wanted her to dump him. And this led the FBI to open a file on her, which will become relevant later in our episode. I'm sure it will in the back half, yeah. Mm -hmm. Marilyn was and is still associated with her dumb blonde persona, but in fact was incredibly well-read and intelligent, especially despite her kind of tough upbringing and not being in school all that often. Um, And this is something that Miller appreciated about her, while no doubt enjoying the fact that the public saw this gorgeous woman 
being interested in basically this normal looking guy. Did that movie include any of her um, intelligent conversations with Arthur Miller? Or is she just like, goo goo ga ga daddy? There actually is a really good scene where she talks to him. I, I think this is all fictionalized. She talks to him about this part that she was playing of, of one of his plays. And she really read into it more than he would ever expect it. And he was very impressed with her. So I, I like that they at least showed that. But then she is goo goo gaga daddy a lot. So, I mean, you know. They were dubbed the Egghead and the Hourglass in the press. And they married in New York in June 1956. And um, this is a fascinating pairing that I'd probably also explore on another podcast, but I'll sum it up to say the couple was quite happy for a time, but unfortunately, unsuccessful and miscarried pregnancies, along with public scrutiny, put strain on the marriage, as well as Marilyn's increasing dependence on barbiturates. So it's like a Henry VIII marriage with barbiturates. Uh... I think he was a little more supportive than Henry VIII. Um, but unfortunately, Marilyn had endometriosis, um, which made pregnancy very difficult for her. She miscarried several times in her life. It was one of her kind of great sadnesses. But Monroe's addiction is key to study when investigating her later death. She struggled throughout her entire life with profound feelings of loneliness, unworthiness, and fear, along with deep, deep childhood trauma, uh, likely multiple sexual assaults, and her treatment by both the press and the public and by those around her in her personal life. These kinds of experiences, naturally, are drivers for addiction, and it didn't help that Marilyn was a contract actress at Fox, right at the time when prescription pills were becoming a trend at the studios. Yeah, and uh, contract the contract system for people who maybe aren't familiar with old Hollywood, Carrie, mm-hmm. um, you'd be You'd be owned by a, a studio, Constant basically, shooting. right? shooting, yeah. You basically had to do whatever they told you to do. And so actors were prescribed uppers to wake up and pep up for early and very long shoot days and downers to get to sleep after. And then that was just a cycle. Because the prescriptions came from doctors, no one really second-guessed it, and many suffered later for their, in, or for their dependence on barbiturates including famous cases we know about today, like Judy Garland. Is Elvis uh, taking some barbiturates? Oh, he sure is. But again, that was another doctor prescribing to him. He was... Yeah, what was the doctor? <sighs> Dr. Nick or... Dr. Nick, yeah. Dr. Feelgood. But basically, and, and JFK had the same thing. Because they were doctors, you know, a lot of these people aren't like medical people. They don't know what these things are. And um, they just trusted them. As Marilyn's fame grew, so did her need for the uppers and downers to simply get through the day, as well as helping to keep dark thoughts and emotions at bay. It's hard enough to deal with mental health issues like depression, anxiety, trauma, and insomnia without the gaze of the public on you, but Marilyn was literally the most famous woman in the world, and the scrutiny was hard for her to bear. But surely, and I understand the impulse, but surely crunching up meth pills is not helping the mental health I don't know strike. if she's crunching anything up but yeah she, but she didn't know that and maybe the doctors didn't even know that at the time they're just trying to, to sedate her basically 
So she self-medicates to cope, but um, it starts to begin to affect not only her relationship with Arthur Miller, but her performances as well. When she returned to Hollywood after a short break in 1958 to act in Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot, another dumb blonde role, she was having difficulty remembering her lines or her direction and demanded dozens of retakes. Oh, so this is, she's getting into late period Judy Garland kind of? Kind of, yeah. She fought tooth and nail with Wilder, who's, for his part, also reputed to be a difficult director. Um, but eventually he was satisfied with her performance, saying, quote, Anyone can rem- remember lines, but it takes a real artist to come on the set and not know her lines and yet give the performance she did. <laughs> so indeed, Some Like It Hot is one of the finest acting jobs and films of Marilyn Monroe's career. Uh, and it actually garnered her a Golden Globe for Best Actress. But unfortunately, fairly soon after, Monroe's career began to decline with her next film, Let's Make Love, failing to generate much success. Now, why is that coming off of the like the acme of her career? Yeah, I mean, it came out, I think, in, I think it came out in 1960. And, um, you know, some time had passed. Maybe it just wasn't very good. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Now, uh, in 1960, Caroline... Reports a- of her difficulty was also more public at this time. Oh, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1960, a young up-and-comer, an Irish Catholic, was famously being um, elected <laughs> president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if he'll come into play in this story. I do wonder. He will. He will. And Tr- he will in the next three <laughs> years because, you know... Yeah. Truman Capote lobbied for Marilyn to play Holly Golightly in the film adaptation of his novel Breakfast at Tiffany's, but the role went to Audrey Hepburn as tales of Monroe's issues were now very widespread, and producers felt that Monroe would complicate the production. Probably not wrong. The last film she would complete would be John Huston's The Misfits in 1960, written by her husband, Arthur Miller, to give Marilyn her desired dramatic role. So they're still married. At this point, yes. Uh, The filming was again very difficult, but by the end of the shoot, Monroe and Miller's marriage was effectively over, with a divorce being finalized in early 1961. Yeah, if if things haven't been going so hot already, definitely don't jump into a feature film together. In the desert, yeah. Yeah. Marilyn's health was also in jeopardy during this time, thanks to a terrible bout of gallstones. Her addictions to pills and alcohol were also so bad at this point that her makeup often had to be applied while she was still asleep under the influence of barbiturates. Oh, this is a bummer. Yeah. And in August of 1960, Marilyn had to spend a week in the hospital detox. Despite her problems, John Huston stated that when Monroe was acting, she, quote, was not pretending to an emotion. It was the real thing. She would go deep down within herself and find it and bring it up to consciousness. Now, is this like, does she get better between now and the end of her life? Or is this better kind of at what? Better in terms of the addiction issues or no, this is, no. it's it's this sort of slurry Judy Garland thing. It doesn't get better. Yeah, that's that's a bummer. Uh, but, but that's, so that's also her the whole time she's with Kennedy. If she's with Kennedy. Very interesting. (laughs) We'll get there. But John Huston kind of noticing this about her reminds me of 
other troubled actors, you know, like Heath Ledger when he was playing the Joker, um, sort of mining actual emotion, but it proving traumatic. I feel that Marilyn likely also had PTSD from everything a, from a her whole life. variety of things in her life. And so in using method acting to repeatedly open her old wounds to deliver genuine emotions and performances, she likely is just re-traumatizing herself over and over again, making her mental health even worse. Although that is the same kind of action you go after in a lot of kinds of therapy, right? Yeah, but you're, I mean, her doctors, again, we'll get into it, but you're being guided by a doctor, you know? If you're just bringing up a memory of a sexual assault, say, to oh. deliver a genuine performance, it's just you guiding yourself, and you're just feeling these emotions over again, and there's nothing helping you deal with it. And so if she's using the method, which... As, uh, after 1955, she was. Now, this is the Kosminski method? No, no, just method acting. Uh, Lee Strasberg's method acting. If she's doing method acting, um, she's just doing this over and over and over again, and there's nothing guiding her. Much of 1961 was preoccupied by health problems, including a cholecystectomy, cholecystectomy. So that's taking something out. Yeah, it's to remove her gallbladder. She had surgery for her endometriosis and uh, a month in the hospital for depression treatment. She returned to the public eye in 1962, beginning to shoot the film Something's Got to Give for Fox. Thanks to a terrible case of sinusitis, she was too sick to work the majority of the next weeks, but despite confirmations by multiple doctors that she was really sick, the studio pressured her by alleging publicly that she was just faking it. Mm. So it was kind of boy who cried wolf situation, I guess. On May 19th, 1962, Marilyn appeared at John F. Kennedy's 45th birthday celebration at Madison Square Garden to sing, Happy birthday, Mr. President. Uh, drawing attention not only with the sexy, breathy way she sang the song, but her outfit. A beige, skin-tight dress covered in rhinestones, which made her appear nude. If I can quote um, Mr. T Mr. Dave Chappelle in, in Happier Times. Bitch, my wife is right here! <laughs> she wasn't, actually. She was home with the kids. But <laughs> she, she could see what was going on. You might remember, audience, that Kim Kardashian stirred up controversy earlier this year when she wore Marilyn's historic dress from this night to the Met Gala. And uh, here's a clip from the birthday gala. Mr. President, the late Marilyn Monroe. I mean, my, my wife is right here. <laughs> well, so here she's jokingly, but in hindsight, chillingly introduced as the late Marilyn Monroe, as she was literally late to the party. 
Sadly, this would be one of the final major public appearances by Monroe before her death, so that title would soon become legitimate. Yeah, I don't. You can't make that joke about somebody who's so clearly uh, <laughs> sliding toward the blip, the brink. Do yeah, you know that I mean? is true. Soon after, Monroe would take sick leave from the film once again, and frustrated at the delays, which were made worse by the rising costs of Cleopatra, also filming at the time. Oh, Ms. Taylor. Mm-hmm. Fox fired Monroe on June 7, 1962, and sued for $750,000 in damages. The studio blamed her for the cancellation of the film. Um, now, for his part, Dean Martin, her co-star, refused to shoot with anyone but Marilyn. So they basically were having to just not keep doing the film. I won't stand next to any games <laughs> but hers, see? Um, and then Fox, because they were pissed off, began to spread negative publicity about her, even alleging that she was mentally disturbed. So... For a Marilyn Monroe at this moment, your career is already feeling a little bit of a backslide from that high water mark mm-hmm. of just the year before. Um, and, a couple years. And now you feel like you are going, you're going to be fired in, in this high profile way. Your name's already in the papers in a bad mm-hmm. way. And your career is going to be over, right? Well, Fox soon regretted their actions and re-entered into negotiations with Marilyn Monroe about finishing the film and offering to shoot another one. Um, Yeah, because Dean won't do it. (laughs) So she was kind of getting back into it by the time of her death. In her final months, Marilyn lived at uh, 12305 Fifth Helena Drive in Brentwood, Los Angeles, California. On her last day of life, Saturday, August 4th, 1962, so this August marked 60 years since her death, she was at her home making plans and talking to several people both in person and on the phone. The timeline gets murky when we look closer at the circumstances of her death, but I'm going to go through the general outline we have of the day before we go to break. In the morning, Marilyn met with photographer Lawrence Schiller to discuss the possibility of Playboy publishing a centerfold of the nude photos taken of her on set of uh, Something's Got to Give, where she had a nude swimming scene. She received a massage from her personal masseuse. She talked with some friends on the phone, signed for some deliveries. Normal Saturday. Present at the house was her housekeeper, Eunice Murray, and her publicist, Patricia Newcomb, who had stayed overnight. Newcomb stated they'd had an argument because Marilyn hadn't slept well the night before. So maybe she was cranky. At 4.30... So the argument wasn't over her not sleeping well the night before? She was just saying... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. They just argued with each other. At 4.30 p.m., psychiatrist Dr. Ralph Greenson arrived at the house for Marilyn's therapy session and asked Newcomb to leave. Greenson stayed until around 7 p.m., at which time he told Eunice Murray to stay overnight with Marilyn and keep her company. Sometime around 7 to 7.15 p.m., Joe DiMaggio Jr. called on the phone. DiMaggio Jr. and Monroe were still close, even despite Marilyn's divorce from his father, and they spoke often, so this was pretty normal. Junior told her he had broken up with a girlfriend that Marilyn apparently hadn't liked, and he later stated he detected nothing alarming about her behavior. Um, and at this point, she's also friendly with Joe again. Yes. Around 7.40 to 7.45, Monroe phoned Greenson to tell him about Junior's breakup, and then she retired to her bedroom at approximately 8 p.m. 
Here, she received a call from actor Peter Lawford, who attempted to persuade her to attend a party he was hosting that night. Lawford apparently became alarmed due to Monroe sounding like she was under the influence of drugs, so I assume she kind of sounded very sleepy and slurry. But, and I'm not taking the piss, as the Brits would say. Um, Presumably, if you know Marilyn Monroe socially, aren't you used to her sounding like that a lot? Yeah, but, you know, she's probably not incapacitated all the time, you know? Certainly not when she's just home by herself, waiting for the housekeeper to come home. Yeah. Uh, Before hanging up, Monroe told Lawford, say goodbye to Pat, say goodbye to the president, and say goodbye to yourself because you're a nice guy. Pat was Pat Kennedy Lawford, Peter's wife. The president, of course, was JFK, who happened to be Lawford's brother-in-law. Marilyn apparently ended the conversation by drifting off. So I'm not sure if he, if anyone hung up or, you know, he's trying to get her on the phone and and she's asleep at this point. Lawford panicked. Um, He attempted to call back and speak to her, but couldn't get through. He called his agent, Milton Ebbins, who attempted to reach Ralph Greenson, but couldn't get through to him. Ebbins called Monroe's lawyer, Mickey Rudin, who called her house and was assured by housekeeper Eunice Murray that she was fine. Uh, Eunice, maybe, could you check? Yeah. Well, the rest of the story, according to Eunice, goes like this. Around 3.30 a.m. on Sunday, August 5th, Eunice woke up sensing something was wrong and saw light streaming out from under Marilyn's bedroom door, but could not get a response from her when called. The bedroom door itself was also locked. Murray then, for some reason, phoned Greenson, the psychiatrist, who advised her to look into Marilyn's room through the window. And, you know, going outside, looking in through the window. Upon doing this, Murray saw Marilyn lying face down on her bed, covered by a sheet and holding the telephone receiver. Greenson arrived at the home shortly after and broke into the room via the window. Here he found that Marilyn was apparently dead. But instead of calling 911, Greenson phoned Dr. Hyman Engelberg, Monroe's personal physician. Engelberg arrived at the house around 3.50 a.m., confirmed the death, because he's a doctor, and over a half hour later, at 4.25 a.m., they finally called the Los Angeles Police Department to report the death and ask for assistance. Well, this is crazy. Does this, like, border on failure to report? How long do you have before you get slapped with a failure to report charge? I think this definitely should qualify. Um, so at this point, it's August 5th, 1962, and Marilyn Monroe, the most famous bombshell in the world, was dead at the young age of 36 years old. Okay, so the, so the likely scenario from everything you just said sounds like she's, she's that guy probably, it, you know, from your story, it sounds like he heard her, he certainly thinks he heard her last moments of consciousness. Perhaps. Door was already locked at that point. Housekeeper goes to bed, she wakes up later, the door's still locked, and and Marilyn's gone. Well, after the break, we'll discuss the inquest into Monroe's death and the conspiracy theories that have sprung up in the years since. Something tells me a few of these are going to deal with this therapist. And aliens. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. 
That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Welcome back. Uh, in the A block here, <laughs> Caroline gave us a whirlwind tour through the very sad, mm. um, briefly hotly shining, brightly burning life of uh, Marilyn Monroe, who brushed elbows with the highest echelons of power and prestige and fame, um, became an icon herself before um, ultimately being taken too soon. We heard the details of the death last time, Carrie, and it sounded for all the world like a mostly mundane overdose, although with some odd behavior Mm -hmm. around it, especially with the therapist and the housekeeper. Mm -hmm. Uh, So my gut, right before the break, my gut was telling me we were going to hear about this therapist and some of these theories. We will, we will. Yes, so we ended part one with the last day of Marilyn Monroe and the official circumstances around her untimely death. And now we'll discuss the inquest's findings and all the theories surrounding her tragic end. Deputy Coroner Thomas Noguchi conducted Marilyn's autopsy at the office of the Chief Medical Examiner Coroner for the County of Los Angeles on the same day she was found dead, Sunday, August 5th. You may remember Thomas Noguchi from, ironically, our Natalie Wood episode, where he had been the coroner as well 20 years later in 1982. Oh my God. So if somebody, if a famous woman has <laughs> has died mysteriously, mm-hmm. they're calling this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Now, at the time of Wood's death, he was accused of speaking too freely with the media, as well as moonlighting and allegedly mismanaging the coroner's office. How did he do this time? Well, well, I'm going to say at that point in 1982, he was demoted from coroner to physician specialist. Um, But before that, he had the grim title as a coroner to the stars. Oh, how glamorous. And this really began with Monroe's death and continued when he later performed the autopsy of Robert F. Kennedy, Sharon Tate, Janis Joplin, John Belushi, and eventually Natalie Wood, among many other famous people, because he was the coroner for L.A. They all came to him. Yeah, sure. The coroner's office was assisted in Marilyn's autopsy by three psychiatrists from the Los Angeles Suicide Prevention Center who interviewed Monroe's doctors and psychiatrists about her mental state. Due to the advanced state of rigor mortis by the time her body was discovered, her time of death was estimated to be between 8.30 and 10.30 p.m. on the night of August 4th. So this fits in with everything. She retires to the room around 8. She has a conversation with Peter Lawford. That gives plenty of time. Toxicological analysis concluded that the cause of death was acute barbiturate poisoning due to a cocktail of drugs found in her blood and liver. 
The drugs included coral hydrate, a sedative and a hypnotic, and pentobarbital, a.k.a. nebutal, a sedative and pre-anesthetic. Okay. Um, so I think the obvious question, were these things that she was taking? Yes. Uh, according to biographer Donald Spotto, quote, police found full and partly full bottles of several drugs on her bedside table, among them antihistamines and medications for her sinusitis. Here were also an empty bottle that contained 25 100 milligram Nembutol capsules with a prescription dated August 3, 1962 on authorization of Dr. Hyman Engelberg. And there were also 10 capsules remaining from an original bottle of 50 500 milligram coral hydrate capsules with a prescription dated July 25th and refilled on the 31st on authorization of Dr. Ralph Greenson. So these were pretty recent. These were recently filled bottles. Um, I mean, one of them certainly was. Yeah, yeah, both of them. But m- several to many of the pills had already been taken out of both. So was this an, uh, an on-purpose suicide? That's one theory. There were no signs of external wounds or bruises on her body. Uh, Chief Coroner Theodore Curfee officially classified Monroe's death as a probable suicide due to the fact that the doses, the dosages uh, found in her body were several times over the lethal limit and looked to have been taken in one gulp or in a few gulps over a minute or so. Uh, and this is kind of the major statement from the three psychiatrists in their final report. Quote, Miss Monroe had suffered from psychiatric disturbance for a long time. She experienced severe fears and frequent depressions. Mood changes were abrupt and unpredictable. Among symptoms of disorganization, sleep disturbance was prominent, for which she had been taking sedative drugs for many years. She was thus familiar with and experienced in the use of sedative drugs and well aware of their dangers. In our investigation, we have learned that Miss Monroe had often expressed wishes to give up, to withdraw, and even to die. On more than one occasion in the past, she had made a suicide attempt using sedative drugs. On these occasions, she had called for help and had been rescued. It is our opinion that the same pattern was repeated on the evening of August 4th, except for the rescue. It has been our practice, with similar information collected in other cases in the past, to recommend a certification for such deaths as probable suicide. Additional clues for suicide provided by the physical evidence are the high level of barbiturates and chloral hydrate in the blood, which, with other evidence from the autopsy, indicates the probable ingestion of a large amount of drugs within a short period of time. Well, they just said that. It was the one gulp thing. The empty bottle of Nembutal, which I don't think it was fully empty, uh, the prescription for which was filled the day before the ingestion, and the locked door to the bedroom, which was unusual. And what's interesting is that Donald Spotto also writes that they really didn't believe that Marilyn took her life deliberately. This was a cry for help and the rescue failed to come. Yeah. um, He quoted them as saying, since our studies from 1960, we have found no authenticated case where barbiturates were involved that a person was so drugged he didn't know what he was doing. So the headline, Marilyn Monroe Dies, Pills Blamed, graced the front page of the Los Angeles Times the next day, August 6th. Marilyn Monroe was buried in a crypt in Westwood Village Memorial Park in Los Angeles following her funeral on August 8th. The funeral was arranged by Joe DiMaggio, who it is said was planning to get back together with her. 
He had been the one to arrange for her release from the Payne Whitney Psychiatric Clinic in 1961. And Val Monette, the owner of a military post exchange supply company told biographer Murray Allen that DiMaggio left his employee on August 1st, 1962, because he had decided to ask Monroe to remarry him. Tragically, he would not get the chance as she died just a few days later, but DiMaggio showed devotion to Monroe even to the end of his life. He had a half dozen red roses delivered to her crypt three times a week for 20 years at least, refused to talk about her publicly or otherwise to exploit their relationship, and he would never marry again. According to DiMaggio's attorney, Morris Engelberg, DiMaggio's last words upon his death were, I'll finally get to see Marilyn. Wait, was his lawyer the doctor who prescribed her all those drugs? Different Engelberg. Related? I don't think so. Okay. Um, so yeah, but the, the DiMaggio story, again, it's a story for a different show. Just, just a sad postscript. Um, but public reaction to Monroe's death was frenzied with interest. According to biographer Lois Banner, quote, it is said that the suicide rate in Los Angeles doubled the month after she died. The circulation rate of most newspapers expanded that month. The Chicago Tribune reported that they had received hundreds of phone calls from members of the public requesting information about Marilyn Monroe's death. French artist Jean Cocteau Cocteau, uh, commented that her death, quote, should serve as a terrible lesson to all those whose chief occupation consists of spying on and tormenting film stars. Her former co-star Laurence Olivier deemed her the complete victim of ballyhoo and sensation, Oh, so this is, it's kind of a a Diana reaction. I think she died at the same age as well. So it's another just interesting parallel. Is that true? Yeah, I think they were both 36. Wow. And her bus stop director, Joshua Logan, stated that she was, quote, one of the most unappreciated people in the world. For now, though, Marilyn Monroe was dead and buried, and that should be the end of the sad tale. But it wasn't. From what I could tell, the conspiracy theories surrounding Monroe's death was really launched in the public mind by the publication of novelist Norman Mailer's book, Marilyn, a Biography, in 1973. But let's back up a little bit first. Anti-communist activist um, Frank A. Capel, 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 I think. Probably. Um, he self-published a pamphlet titled The Strange Death of Marilyn Monroe in 1964, which I think is really the beginning of the whispers of conspiracy in this case. In the pamphlet, Capel claimed that Monroe's death was part of a communist conspiracy and that her and U.S. Attorney General at the time, Robert F. Kennedy, had had an affair prior to her death. Okay, but why does that make the communists a killer? Well, uh, Monroe claimed Capel had taken the romance too seriously and was threatening to go public and cause a scandal. So naturally, Kennedy had her assassinated to protect his career and image. Capel deemed RFK to be a communist sympathizer and that many people close to Monroe, including her doctors, and as we mentioned before, her ex-husband Arthur Miller, were communists. Now, like you said, how does communism fit in here? Or, like in the movie Clue, is communism just a red herring? Well, it sounds like this guy's just kind of a just kind of an anti-communist Cold War hawk who doesn't want RFK to be the next president, right? Yeah, Cap 
Capel's uh, credibility, first of all, has been seriously questioned. According to multiple Monroe biographers, including the aforementioned Donald Spotto, who wrote Marilyn Monroe, The Biography, Capel's only source on this story was the columnist Walter Winchell, who had really received most of his information from Frank Capel. Oh, oh, this seems strangely circular. (laughs) Which, well, which means in using Winchell as a source, he was really just citing himself, which is not the best way to go about getting the truth from a story. That's, uh, we were watching uh, Drunken Master, and there's a fun <laughs> fun joke in there. Um, oh, yeah, you know, we belong in the, I, we have friends in there. I can prove it. Ask me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Capel sourced some information from his friend Jack Clemens, a sergeant with the LAPD who was the first officer on the scene when Monroe's death was reported. Clemens has become a central figure for Monroe conspiracists, as he later made claims that were not mentioned during the original 1962 investigation, such as the allegation that when he arrived at Monroe's house, Eunice Murray was washing her sheets in the laundry, prompting Clemens's so-called sixth sense that something was wrong. The motives of both Capel and Clemens have been questioned as well. Wait, why is the act of washing sheets suspicious? Why are you washing sheets when someone's just died? You're a housekeeper. It's your job. You're not going to keep doing chores while there's a dead body in the house. You might, especially if they're the sheets that she uh, died in, although the the police haven't been there yet. No. Yeah, this is bad. He he says she's already washing something. You're not supposed to do that. But again, their motives have been questioned. Capel pretty much dedicated his life to proving an international communist conspiracy. And Clemens was a member of the police and fire research organization, which sought to expose, quote, subversive activities which threaten our American way of life. Police and fire research organization. Yeah, it was known as FIPO. And FIPO was known to have a stance against the Kennedys and for sending the FBI incriminating letters. And these are all cops and firefighters? Apparently. Uh, The 1964 FBI file that speculated on an affair between Monroe and RFK is likely to have come from FIPO. Most damningly, Capel, Clemens, and a third person were indicted in 1965 by a California grand jury for conspiracy to libel by obtaining and distributing a false affidavit, claiming that Senator Thomas Kutchel had once been arrested for a homosexual act. They had done this, uh, Clemens and Capel, simply because Kutchel had supported the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Oh, nice guys. And they were against that. Capel pled guilty and charges against Clemens were dropped after he resigned from the LAPD. So, yeah, it doesn't really lend credence to their claims. In, in the middle of all that, did you say the only reason people think JFK and Monroe slept together at all is because of these guys? Well, this is really centered on RFK. JFK... Slept with Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) No, it actually... He doesn't come into the conspiracy theories as much as RFK does. Um, And there is a lot of question on whether he did even sleep. Like, There's a little more to her being with RFK, but I think I read recently that they were together like in the same place like a couple of times. Yeah, but Kennedy including the happy birthday, Mr. President, and like a party at Frank Sinatra's house. A, they were together at a party at Frank Sinatra's house, <laughs> Period. Come on. Yeah. I mean, they might have hooked up 
John F. Kennedy slept with like hundreds of women. Yeah, he, they might have hooked up once or twice, but I don't I don't know that I have to look deeper into it. I didn't look super deep because it didn't seem as relevant as RFK, but, but they didn't have like a like a lingering affair. It doesn't seem like it. Um, so Marilyn's death was also discussed in Charles Hamblett's Who Killed Marilyn Monroe in 1966 and James A. Hudson's The Mysterious Death of Marilyn Monroe in 1968. But none of these first three accounts, including the pamphlet, were widely disseminated. So that brings us back to Norman Mailer. Though he had no other evidence than what Capel and the others had, Mailer repeated the claim that Monroe and RFK had been in an affair and that she was killed by either the FBI or CIA who wished to use the murder as a, quote, point of pressure against the Kennedys. The book was heavily criticized in reviews, and Mailer actually recanted his allegations later that year in an interview with 60 Minutes. So, so this is just uh, the same theory, but coming from the opposite tack, trying to discredit um, the CIA and the FBI instead of... Uh, yeah, RFK it, it seems communists. like it seems like he is taking the approach that it was done to the Kennedys and not by the Kennedys yes. at this point. But he stated on 60 Minutes that he had made these allegations to ensure commercial success for his book huh. and that he actually believes Monroe's death was 10 to 1 an accidental suicide. Uh, but people don't really think about his um, recanting. <laughs> And just kind of run with the allegations he made. Right. And due to Mailer's fame, the conspiracy theories really took hold after his publication and then became more widely known to the general public. In 1975, a man named Robert F. Slatzer published The Life and Curious Death of Marilyn Monroe with allegations based on the Capel pamphlet. Additionally, Slatzer also claimed in this book he had been married to Monroe in Mexico for three days in October 1952 and that they had remained close friends until her death. Okay, how does the timeline work out? Where was she in October 1952? She's still modeling at this point, but there's really nothing to back up his claim and the only photos that exist of the two together, which if they're married or close friends forever, like there would be more pictures, um, they were taken on the set of Niagara. And this was when members of the press, like, like Slatzer, were invited to visit the shooting. <laughs> and she kind of, she autographed it like, lots of love, Marilyn, you know, like, so he's a creep, uh, and he's yeah. not to be trusted. <laughs> and I feel comfortable saying that. In 1976, rock journalist Anthony Scaduto. Sorry? Scaduto published uh, the book. Can we finish up this podcast? I got a Scaduto. <laughs> I got a Scaduto out of here. Uh, he published the book, Who Killed Marilyn Monroe, under the pen name Tony Siaka. His only sources for the book were the aforementioned Slatzer, who, again, only really sourced Capel oh, yeah, and himself, and, yes. and his private investigator, Myro Spiriglio. Wow. <laughs> a lot of Italians in the story. Well, surely he's a Greek, Spiriglio, yeah, no? Yeah, maybe, yeah. No, no, no. That can, Milo, that can Italian, Milo, though. though. Yeah. Maybe. In addition to repeating Slatzer's claims, Scaduto alleged that Monroe had kept a red diary in which she had written confidential political information she had heard from the Kennedys, and that her house had been wiretapped by surveillance expert Bernard Spindle on the orders of union leader Jimmy Hoffa, who was hoping to obtain incriminating evidence he could use against the Kennedys. So Jimmy Hoffa's in here. I mean, why not? Let's, <laughs> let's, let's get him in. 
Private investigator Milo Spiriglio himself expanded on this theory in 1982's Marilyn Monroe murder cover-up, in which he claimed that Monroe had been murdered by Hoffa in conjunction with mob boss Sam Giancana, who was involved in John F. Kennedy's 1960 victory in the presidential election. I am amazed we haven't heard Oswald's name mentioned yet. <laughs> Me too. Uh, Giancana was also recruited by the the CIA in a plot to assassinate Cuban leader Fidel Castro in the early 60s, which I think is true. Uh, And he's part of many of the conspiracy theories surrounding the assassination of JFK in 1963. In his book, Spiriglio quoted coroner's office employee Lionel Grandison as stating that Monroe's body was extensively bruised, but this fact was omitted from the autopsy report. Grandison also claimed to have seen the Red Diary, but that it had mysteriously disappeared. Spiriglio and Slatzer demanded that the investigation into Monroe's death be reopened by authorities, and the Los Angeles District Attorney agreed to review the case, but the new investigation could not find any evidence to support the murder claims. Oh, and it was also found that Grandison had been fired from the coroner's office because he had been caught stealing from corpses. Oh, another creep. Yeah, not super reliable. Was this the coroner to, coroner to the stars? No, he's just a random worker, but he was one of the sources for yeah, this, okay. this book. In 1985, journalist Anthony Summers published Goddess, The Secret Lives of Marilyn Monroe, which became one of the most commercially successful Monroe biographies. Uh, we have a copy of it. Summers claimed that Marilyn's death was an accidental overdose enabled and covered up by RFK. According to his book, Monroe had severe substance abuse problems and was psychotic in the last months of her life. And when RFK ended their affair, Monroe threatened to publicly reveal their illicit romance. Kennedy had Peter Lawford enable her addictions to, I guess, muck up her credibility And eventually, while with them, Monroe became hysterical and accidentally overdosed, dying in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. Why, if you're going to make up a theory, (laughs) why would you make it like so far from the actual like established events? (laughs) Well, Kennedy, you see, according to Summers, wanted to leave Los Angeles before Monroe's death became public to avoid being associated with it. So therefore, her body was returned to her Helena Drive home and the overdosed stage as a suicide by Peter Lawford, the Kennedys, and J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI. Okay, so what, the body is just <laughs> hanging out for two days before it's autopsied? Um, not two days, but... Enough time to arrange some flights and, and get some people <sighs> in and out of town. I mean, you know, these are the Kennedys. They could, go, they could do that stuff quick. He conducted, uh, Summers, the writer, he conducted interviews with 650 people connected to Monroe for the bio, but according to fellow biographer Donald Spato, Summers often contradicts himself, presents false information as fact, and misrepresents some of what Marilyn Monroe's friends said about her, as well as using information from controversial witnesses like Slatzer and Clemens. Other books in the 90s about Monroe's death basically presented the same information and theories that had been published before with without much in the way of new evidence. So at this point, like if you see Slatzer or Clemens... I'm just, I'm, I'm immediately discounting what they say. Yeah. In Spado's own 1993 biography, Spado disputes the conspiracy theories, but also states that he feels Monroe's death was an accidental overdose later staged as a suicide. Quote, 
First, the ratio of nebutal found in the blood compared to that in the liver suggested to many to any competent forensic pathologist that Marilyn lived for many hours after ingestion of that drug. Second, suicide by deliberate nembutal overdose would have been an action entirely inconsistent with everything in Marilyn Monroe's life at the time, especially after the call from Joe DiMaggio Jr., as reported by him and both Murray and Greenson. Third, had she, for some unknown reason, suddenly decided to commit suicide, she would have taken a large dose at one time, not many capsules throughout the day, which she well knew how to ingest intermittently and at which dosages. The barbiturate would have reached a toxic level rapidly and she would have died. But in that case, there would almost certainly be a residue of pills in the stomach, which I don't believe there was. I think it was just found in the blood and liver. Spato also rejected the possibility of barbiturate injection, as a dose large enough to be lethal would have resulted in almost instant death when injected uh, intramuscularly or intravenously. Because there are uh, specious reports, aren't there, Carrie, that there was some, there was like a, a tiny wound <laughs> on her body that could have been a mosquito bite or an injection mark? No, well, so Thomas Noguchi, he stated in his report that he went over the body with a magnifying glass to look for any needle marks and he found none i've heard tell of a needle mark being like under her breast but i don't know there also weren't any bruises um such a large dose she probably would have been bruised by the the needle injection and she didn't have any however an alternate route of administration was found during autopsy a major area of Maryland's colon bore market congestion and purplish, purplish discoloration, a condition consistent with a rectal administration of barbiturates or coral hydrate. Prosecutor John Miner stated in 1992, This abnormal, anomalous discoloration of the colon has to be accounted for. Noguchi and I were convinced that an enema was absolutely the root of administering the fatal drug dose. Okay, but in why? <laughs> the revised theory goes like this. Doctors Greenson and Engelberg had been trying to stop Marilyn abusing Nembutal. In order to monitor her drug use, they had agreed to never prescribe her anything without first consulting with each other. But Marilyn was able to persuade Engelberg to break his promise by lying to him that Greenson had agreed to it. She took several Nembutals on August 4th, but did not tell this to Greenson, who prescribed her a coral hydrate enema, and the combination of these two drugs would be what killed her. Afraid of the consequences, the doctor and housekeeper Eunice Murray then staged the death as a suicide, which helps explain the strange choices the group made in the early morning hours of August 5th. Murray calling Greenson and not the police, and waiting the better part of an hour before calling the LP LAPD to the home. That holds together better than any theory we've heard so far, uh, except for the accepted version of events, maybe. Is an enema ever a way that they administered drugs in the 50s or 60s? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you say, it all seems pretty legit, but in the interest of delivering you all the truth, Sean and our listeners, John Minor, the aforementioned prosecutor, wasn't the most reliable witness either. In the 2000s, he published transcripts he claimed to have made from audio tapes that Monroe recorded shortly before her death, in which she speaks of her plans for the future, her sex life, and her use of enemas, medically. 
Um, However, during the official review of the case by the district attorney in 1982, he told investigators about the tapes but did not mention that he had transcripts of them, claiming that this was because Greenson had sworn him to silence. The tapes themselves had never have never been found, and Minor remains the only person to claim they existed, with Greenson having already died before he went public with them. So who knows? But to me, that only really causes issue with some of the findings. The state of Maryland's body and colon remains, if we believe in the autopsy report's veracity, an unalterable fact. I do have to throw in one more theory that I promised, which comes to us uh, originally from a Gizmodo article published in 2017. The article, entitled, A New UFO Documentary Suggests Marilyn Monroe Was Killed Because She Knew About Aliens. Oh, that's right. Yes, you did promise Mm -hmm. aliens. It discusses the documentary Unacknowledged, which can currently be found on Amazon Prime, Tubi, you know, random streamers. In this documentary, it's alleged that Marilyn was murdered because she threatened to leak classified information, and that this knowledge came from no less than Burl Ives, via subject of the documentary Dr. Stephen Greer, a ufologist who founded the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence and the Disclosure Project. Mr. Holly Jolly Christmas himself? Yes. Burl Ives, you know him as a Christmas personality who played Sam the Snowman. A Christmas personality. (laughs) He's a Christmas personality. Like Michael Buble. Well, that's the king of Christmas. Uh, He played Sam the Snowman in the claymation Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer TV special, which, of course, gave birth to all those fabulous Christmas songs he recorded. So this is a quote from the documentary from Stephen Greer. Quote, Burl Ives, he was a 33rd degree mason. So all of you people who think that all these secret societies, everyone in it knows everything. They don't know anything. I think he's saying Burl Ives was like a really important Mason. Oh, and see. he was just fucking Burl Ives. He yes. wasn't, you know, a, a, a world dominating uh, Illuminati. He said to me, he says, we all know that Marilyn Monroe didn't die of an overdose. He said, do you know why they killed Marilyn? And then Dr. Greer shows a document which he calls a virtual death warrant. Um, it's a transcript from August 3rd, 1962. I, okay. What does virtual death warrant mean? Well, it, it, it's, he's being metaphorical about it. But it's, it's a wiretap uh, transcript of phone conversations, I think about Marilyn Monroe, between reporter Dorothy Kilgallen, who Dr. Greer states was looking into Roswell and other UFO cases, and her friend Howard Rothberg. In the transcript, they discuss Marilyn's breakup with the Kennedys, as they put it. So both of them. The two of them. And Rothberg mentions the visit of the president. But only one breakup. That's fascinating. Yes. Well, maybe they were a thruple. Um, Rothberg mentions the visit of the president to a secret air base, quote, for the purpose of inspecting things from outer space. According to Rothberg, at least in this transcript, Monroe continuously threatened to leak these secrets to the press, including a threat to hold a press conference and tell all, and I guess presumably including the truth about UFOs. I don't know where Dr. Greer got this transcript, and I don't think that it's just UFOs. Like, maybe she had the nuclear codes. I don't know. I also, I love when people have just a transcript of what they claim to have been a phone call. I don't know where it's from, uh, but that's where the segment on Marilyn ends in the documentary, so, yeah. So here we are in 2022, and the film Blonde has come back to the conclusion that her death was an accidental or purposeful suicide, depending on how you read their 
filming of it via overdose. But speculation is spreading anew. I'm seeing Marilyn Monroe conspiracies on TikTok now, which is how you always know. Uh, With one video stating that Marilyn's body disappeared for several hours on the day she died, with the time span between the body leaving the home and arriving at the L.A. County morgue being over six hours. Any evidence of that? (sighs) I, mm, I don't know. It seems to be a common... Um, legend, well, vaguely common. The TikToker didn't say where they sourced it. I did find a reference to it in a um, a novel, Whacked, by Jules Asner. Um, <laughs> and this is a fictionalization of the murder of Marilyn no, Monroe? No, I think it's a fictionalization of, like, Hollywood gossip. Um, but, you know, I couldn't really find, like, a a set place of, like, where this came from. But it asserts that Marilyn's body was subjected to post-mortem sex with the highest bidders before she was brought to the morgue. And so this TikToker is is continuing to to spread that theory. It's it's, interesting that that didn't show up in the autopsy, you'd think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's certainly grim stuff. Uh, it's grim stuff for the app that began with people lip syncing and dancing. Um, but it shows that interest in her and her death have been both renewed and obviously never truly went away. That reflects the. It's the same kind of thing as like the idea of these satanic um, uh, child sex abuse cults mm-hmm. among in the highest echelons of power or whatever. People just want to believe that presidents and actors and stuff yes. are. All just desperate to have sex with corpses and children. And well, it's. I think it's because it's the worst thing. And some of them are, but n- yeah. not most of them. I think it's because it's the worst thing that many people can imagine, right? Like necrophilia and pedophilia and all those philias. Not good philias. Um, so I think a lot of this stuff just gets ascribed to people that they're already trying to accuse of things. But here are the final main theories about Marilyn's death. I broke it into seven, okay? One, it was a purposeful suicide. Two, it was an accidental suicide. Three, it was a murder carried out by RFK or the FBI or CIA to cover up her affair with RFK or to pressure the Kennedys. Three, A, it was a murder carried out by RFK or the FBI or CIA to prevent Monroe going public with state secrets learned during her affair or affairs. And we're rolling the UFO one right into that. No, that one will be last. I put it separate because <laughs> it's fun. Four, it was a murder carried out by Jimmy Hoffa, Sam Giancana, <laughs> take your pick for a variety of reasons to get back at the Kennedys, whatever. Five, she accidentally overdosed and her death was staged as a suicide by Peter Lawford, RFK, and J. Edgar Hoover, among others. Why not? Six. She accidentally overdosed due to doctor negligence, and her death was staged as a suicide by doctors Greenson and Engelberg with help from Eunice Murray. Still my favorite of the fringe theories. Continue. Seven. And last, she was killed by the Kennedys or some association with them them to prevent her spilling the tea, particularly about UFOs. (laughs) So, Sean, what do you think allegedly happened the night of Marilyn Monroe's death? I, I guess it's either, if it was a suicide, when we talk about an accidental suicide, we mean that this was kind of a cry for help scenario. And you mentioned that it had happened before where she 
took a bunch of pills and called somebody and said, I just took a bunch of pills. And then they came over and And you can them. even break that into 2A and 2B, which is accidental suicide with the intention of being rescued or accidental suicide, not understanding that she was overdosing. Right. Like just trying to get real high and yeah. the pills don't work that well anymore. And Yeah. yeah. Um, but the amount that she seems to have taken or been given, um, to me, it sounds like certainly to the whoever performed the, to the coroner to the stars, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that seems to have ruled out the pure accidental overdose. They seem to believe that she had been taking these things for so long that she knew the risks, she knew the dosages, she knew how to space things out. She knew not to swallow a whole bottle that was refilled yesterday. Right. But again, there wasn't anything in her stomach, just in her blood and liver. Um, So to me, that doesn't suggest as much that she took something orally. That brings us to the last theory with the medical enema. Well, and that's the, the sixth theory. The seventh, the last theory. Well, is yeah, sorry. Yes. The last actual serious <laughs> yes. theory. Yes. Um, and that, what makes me gravitate towards it is that everyone's behavior in the wake of Marilyn's death is bizarre. Yes. Some would say shady. I Very shady or stupid. You know, and people do lots of stupid things when they're distressed, yeah. but... Um, I don't know. How do you read that? All, all of that—the six-hour delay, the washing, the sheets. Um, oh, the, the fact that the first person she calls, first of all, it's is the we- psychiatrist. First, it's weird. The psychi- the shrink asks asks the housekeeper to leave. Although maybe not. Therapy is a private thing. No, the shrink asked the publicist to leave. The housekeeper was still there. Okay. So he asks. He, he's clearing out the house, and then when he and then he he's the last person the housekeeper speaks to. Um, before she leaves the house. And then he's the first person the housekeeper calls instead of the police? Yeah. If I have to give my opinion, I think that it was an accidental murder by by the doctors. Um, now Marilyn might have had some role in that if she really did convince them to give her that extra little zhuzh and they didn't want to, right? I think there's no doubt. But she might not have understood what she was doing. There's no doubt the two of them, the two doctors, were concerned that they might be under some criminal culpability. And that's why the delay is there. I think there was enough happening in Marilyn's life that... Listen, it could have been a spur, a spur of the moment thing, just a, a terrible bout of depression that day, and she just decided to end it all. Maybe she did cry out for help, but maybe she wasn't heard or something. I think, you know, with with Fox putting her back on the movie, giving her another movie, she has Joe DiMaggio Jr. calling her, and things might be seeming promising with Joe again. Um she she's said to have been making plans with friends. She's talking that day to a photographer about a Playboy centerfold. She's making plans. And and that's a classic thing. Someone who's expecting they're going to commit suicide does not usually make plans for the future. Right. They might actually do things like cancel their cable. Sure. Yeah. So her behavior... I mean, aside from her general addiction, general mental health issues, her behavior that day and leading up to that day, it doesn't suggest to me that she was planning to kill herself. Again, it could have been a spur of the moment thing. I don't think she was planning on it. Um, 
I I mean, look at what happened. The same thing, really, that we're suggesting happened to Michael Jackson. He kept on begging for more and yes. more sedative. The doctor gave it to him and he died. And, and then they tried, he tried to, to cover it up a little bit and he just wasn't good at it. Yeah, exactly. Did they, I forget whether that doctor went to jail or not. He did. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, I remember everyone going, oh, yeah, that doctor killed Michael Jackson. <laughs> right. But this is at least 50 years before that. Um, these are very well established, prominent doctors. Maybe they could have even had some influence on the the autopsy or the coroner, coroner's office saying, hey, like, don't make a note of the the colon or whatever, you know. Um, I believe that much more in 1962 than nowadays, you know. She's like, trust me, I'm her doctor. You don't need to look at her colon. It's great. <laughs> I think I think it was it was an accident perpetrated by doctors feel good and um and they they covered it up but you know the the fact that it was a cover up it led to a lot of questions and people have tried to fill in those blanks but presumably then if they did anything if there was any criminal cover up that happened we don't know the specifics of it because they were successful they were somewhat successful but if they were the most successful, no one would be talking about this with suspicion. Right. Well, I saw a great movie where they said that it was an accidental overdose and she called people daddy all the time. Oh, boy. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. Instead of news this week, I'm introducing a new end-of-show segment today, Calls from Beyond. Use the energy within this environment and speak through that. <laughs> this is where we'll play messages from our listeners left in our Google Voice mailbox. You can leave messages of your own by calling 203-666-5529. Feel free to give your thoughts on episodes and topics, make requests, whatever. Just, you know, be nice. <laughs> I'm fragile. <laughs> <laughs> this message comes from our wonderful friend and fan, Kathleen, and is re in response to our last Jack the Ripper episode. Hey, Carrie and Sean, it's Kathleen. Uh, just a little bit into the fourth Jack the Ripper episode and just got to the part about um, the guy's lawyer who said, I think my client's Jack the Ripper, and you guys were saying how you were surprised that that never happens. Thought it might be interesting, maybe it's not just to add, as a criminal lawyer, the reason that you never hear lawyers do that is because you're not allowed to. Your right to confidentiality with your client is literally forever, um, and unless your client says it's okay, even if they die, you're still not allowed to say anything. Um, which is weird and a little counterintuitive and sort of an ethical quandary because if you know um, where, you know, someone who's missing is or something like that, 
it does kind of suck that you can't say anything. But uh, just a little context, because I think it comes up in a lot of cases with lawyers, actually. Like, why didn't lawyers say anything? Uh, technically, really not supposed to against the rules of ethics that bind lawyers. Obviously, doubt, not sure if rules of ethics existed in uh, the late 1800s. But a little context. Uh, love you guys. Can't wait to keep listening to the episode. And uh, see you later. Bye. So Kathleen setting a really high standard here. <laughs> Uh, as far as the usefulness and experience level of a, of a listener email. I mean, you know, <laughs> that, that's going to be hard to beat in terms of actual useful uh, 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 contribution. Yeah, Kathleen here has clarified exactly what we were speculating on. Um, the lawyer really should not have done this. But as she mentioned, law ethics were a little different in the late 1800s. But it also, to me, seems to imply even more strongly that this just never happened. Yeah. So there we have it. Um, we love messages like this. So you've, if you have any particular experience that may answer questions we raise in the show, feel free to give us a ring. Uh, just make sure to let us know if you don't want your message played in the next episode. But we'd love to hear from all of you. Yeah, we could even bleep your name if you want. You know, just let us, we'll, we'll, whatever you need. Whatever you need. <laughs> Thanks, Kathleen. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We sure will. And special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons already joining us over there. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and Ira. Thank you, guys. We love you very much. And... Uh, for everybody else, if you don't want to, uh, if you're not ready yet to, to take the leap on Patreon, um, you can help us probably even more by just giving us a five star uh, review or yes. or writing a review. Those those things really really make a difference. Yes. Thanks. Thanks. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel. Music is a verb. Ain't it scary? Has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. 
And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.